All right, so today we start a brand new series called The Creed, and we've been looking forward to this for a very long time. And you might say, well, wasn't Creed that terrible post-grunge band in the 90s? Yes, it was that terrible post-grunge band in the 90s. That's okay. But for this purpose, uh, we are going to study the creed that's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It is the creed of the early church. We'll talk about that today. We're going to sear this creed into our hearts, our souls, our minds. It's going to become what I hope is the creed of our entire lives and our our whole life lived on the basis of the creed that we're going to study for the next six weeks. So some of you may not be real familiar with the word creed. The word creed is a system of beliefs that guide our actions. A system of beliefs that guide our actions. Now, having a formal creed is a little bit old school. Um, If you were raised in in a high church environment, you may have memorized creeds. If you were uh, brought through, um, you know, a a children's youth uh, program uh, with uh, catechisms and things like that, you might have memorized some creeds. But that's a little bit old school. And so the idea of having a creed that's memorized is, is kind of a time gone by, but everybody still has a creed, whether you've memorized one or not. Everybody has a system of beliefs by which they live their lives. In fact, if, if you notice, well, that person tends to be kind of selfish. That's a self-centered person over there. That person has a creed. Their self-centeredness comes from a creed. They haven't memorized it necessarily. They haven't worked through it, but there is a creed, a system of beliefs that guide our actions. So if somebody's selfish, their creed might be something like this. I am the center of my world. And I will do what it takes to get my way and get what I want. You may know somebody like that, right? That's what they believe about their own existence. Or if somebody is out there just, you know, trying to have as much fun as possible or or materialistic, that comes from a creed. They may not have memorized it. They may not have written it down. But there is a belief system that animates everything they do. And that might go something like this. I have one life to live and I'm going to make the most out of it by having as much fun as possible and getting as much stuff as possible. A lot of people may have a creed like that. It's not formal, not memorized, but everything we do comes from a set of beliefs or values. That's called a creed. This has been a very rough three days in the United States of America. There were two African Americans gunned down just because they were black a few days ago. A couple days ago, these these mail bombs go out, uh, 14 or 15 of them. And then yesterday, this terrible mass killing, this race-driven Uh, mass shooting in this um, uh, Pittsburgh synagogue, horrific stuff. Those vile actions come from a creed, a belief system of hate. Could be political hate, could be racial hate. Everything we do is fueled by a creed. Now, sometimes people have creeds, values, and beliefs that are terrible and promote terrible behavior. But I'd say for, for most people who generally wanna be good people, There's a creed that is more altruistic. In fact, they did a lot of um, uh, looking through examples of personal creeds. Some people take the time uh, to write out their own creed. Uh, This one struck me as a very wonderful creed. To give away the best of what I have to offer and keep the worst to myself. I love that. This person, I think it was a she, she recognized that she has gifts and skills and strengths and she says, I wanna give the best of myself away. She also realizes that I have some brokenness in my life. I'm gonna keep that, right? I'm going to keep that. I'm not going to spill brokenness out to others. And she goes on to say, I will become a constant instrument of love and compassion, seeking peace in the world. That's cool. That's very cool. Now, if, um, if I asked you to break out your phone and open your note app, and for 10 minutes, we're going to work on our own personal creed, that might be kind of fun. 
It would be awkward because you didn't come to church to sit in silence for 10 minutes working on a homework project. But uh, all of us would benefit, I think, by taking some time to think about what our creed is. To think about what our creed is and then to think, well, what do I want my creed to become? Now, if you're sitting in church, you might think, well, he's looking for a religious creed, a religious creed. And religious creeds are very common. People who have a religious mindset or a religious worldview, uh, they have a specific way of thinking about life that depends entirely on what they think of God. Now, there's actually a bit of a creedal statement found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12. This is a typical religious creed. If you pay attention to the laws of God and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you. That's a standard sort of religious creed. This is an old covenant creed found in the Old Testament. And the entire Old Testament is based on this kind of a creedal system, that if you obey God, good things will come to you. If you disobey God, bad things will come to you. That's the old covenant. If you obey God, he'll bless you. If you disobey God, he will not bless you. In fact, he could curse you. That's the old covenant. It essentially says, if I obey God, then he will bless me. Now, a lot of people still live by that old covenant. A lot of people still live by that old creedal system. You know, I believe in God. He wants things for me. If I give him those things, my obedience, you know, my time, read the Bible, pray, obey, go to church, do all the things, check all the boxes, then God will bless my life. And so people live by that creed. If I'm a good person, God will bring good things to me. The problem is that is, that is old covenant. That is kind of the history of Israel. It is not what Jesus came to bring to us today. Jesus messed up the whole religious creedal system and challenged the materialistic, self-centered creedal system. Jesus brings a whole new way of looking at God, a whole new way of relating with God. Jesus brings an entirely new creed, a new system of beliefs that define a new relationship with God. And this is the creed that we're gonna memorize over the next six weeks. We're gonna memorize it together a little bit. I'm hopeful that you will you know, review it a couple of times a week to get this creed that's found in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians chapter two, to get this creed into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds, so that our lives can be lived on that basis. So in respect for this creed, uh, I want us to, to stand, and we're gonna put it on the side screen, and we're gonna recite it together, and we're gonna do this every single week. Go ahead and stand, and uh, it's gonna be a good time to get this into our hearts. Just read out loud along with me. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. That's the creed of the early church. Now, it's established that the early church had various versions of creeds that could be poetry, it could be songs. In fact, uh, the early church along with the Hebrew culture, sang from the Psalms, the book of the Bible that has 150 songs in it. They sang those Psalms, but they also sang hymns and spiritual songs. And many scholars think that Philippians chapter two, six through 11, that we just recited together, 
that that was an early hymn or an early creed of the first church. In the late 19th century, biblical scholars started noticing a rhythm of Philippians 2, 6 through 11. They noticed a cadence. They noticed a structure that was very similar to Greek poetry and to Hebrew hymns. And they started studying it in that vein, and they really discovered that that this had to exist before Paul wrote the book of Philippians because it used words that Paul never uses. So Paul was essentially quoting a hymn or a creed that had already existed when he wrote the letter to the Philippian church. A number of studies, scholarly studies, have detailed the specific structure of this creed and established it as an early liturgy of the early church. There's basically two halves to the creed that we just recited. Verses six through eight of Philippians two talk about Christ's humiliation and verses nine through 11 talk about Christ's exaltation. And as we go through this creed over the coming five weeks, we're gonna see in great detail the importance of knowing the value of Christ humbled and Christ exalted and what that means to our daily lives. There's actually a, a scholar, uh, his name is Ralph Martin. He, he, he studied the, the tonal quality of this creed and he is very convinced that there, is a, a, that there is music put to this creed that it very well might not just have been a creed memorized by the church but sang by the church. So very interesting stuff. Now, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 could very well be the first creed of the first church. Now, there's been many creeds after that, right? There's the Apostle Creed, Nicene Creed. There's all these creeds that come after this one, but this is likely the original creed of the original church. What we believe, what doctrines that we hold to, what are our value systems that animate our entire life? Now, the the Greek word for that core doctrine is called the kerygma, The kerygma was the core doctrine of the early church. There's there's the kerygma and the didache. The kerygma is the doctrine. The didache is how we live that out or interpret that doctrine. And so it was very important to have our kerygma, the core message, memorized and understood. This passage that we recited together, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is the core gospel. It is the core doctrine of the early church. Everything else is really peripheral. So if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, Memorize Philippians 2, 6 through 11. That's the core kerygma, the core message of the gospel. Now, the reason why this kerygma, the reason why this gospel is so profound is that it's entirely upside down. It's the upside down kerygma. It's the upside down creed. Now, what do I mean by upside down? In order for us to understand why it's upside down, we have to understand what right side up is. Right side up in the Roman Empire was about power. Right side up in the Roman Empire was top down, the powerful at the top, and then everybody else was subjugated to the powerful. On the side screen, I want to show you Nero. This is Nero, the emperor of Rome. He's considered by most scholars to be an absolute psychopath. It is said that he burned down the city of Rome and played the liar as as Rome was burning. That probably didn't happen. Uh, but that became sort of his reputation, that he's this psychopath willing to destroy his own capital city so that his name would be made great as it was rebuilt, right? Uh, now, I'll give you just a little resume about Emperor Nero, who was the emperor of Rome when Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Paul was actually sitting in a prison under Nero's persecution of Christians. Nero executed his mother. Nice. He also executed a wife. He forced a man to kill himself so he could marry that man's wife. Nice. 
He killed another wife by horrific, violent abuse. Now, this is tough here, but just want to show you the depth of the depravity of, of Nero, the emperor who was presiding over Rome in a power paradigm in which the early church was born. Emperor Nero forced the castration of a male child so that he could marry that child because that child looked like the wife he just killed. That's the Emperor Nero. So when the Bible talks about sexual abomination, that's what it's talking about. Sometimes the church today calls things abominations and this is an abomination. Nero took great pleasure in torturing Christians. He actually blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. And so there was a systemic persecution of Christians that involved skinning them alive, feeding them to dogs, feeding them to lions, um, impaling them on posts, um, covering them with tar and lighting them alive on fire. That's Nero. This is a power paradigm, a power paradigm. The power paradigm was in fact the, the most moral thing you could do in the Roman Empire was to achieve power. Even at the expense of people you had to use and abuse, it was moral to use and abuse people to gain more personal power. That was the system of the time of the first church. It went something like this. Here is the normal sort of org chart of a power paradigm. At the very top are the Roman gods and the Caesars at the time Nero. And then you go right down the list, right? There's the politicians and landowners, the soldiers, business owners, day laborers, slaves and prisoners, and the least of the least was the crucified. The crucified were considered the most shamed, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, hung up sometimes for days, upwards of three days on a cross, alive, suffocating to death slowly in front of cities. The worst, the least, the most despised was the crucified. This was the power paradigm of Rome. And the idea was you bring incredible power to yourself by using and abusing others to get to the top. That was the morality of the time. That was the paradigm of the time, the power paradigm. Now, as we know, studying the life of Christ in great detail over 2018, we know that Jesus came to tear down the power paradigm and establish a whole new paradigm called the humility paradigm. That's my word, the humility paradigm. Jesus came to bring a whole new way of looking at life, a whole new way of looking at God. And so he took the power paradigm and he turned it upside down. And that's the creed, the humility creed of Philippians chapter two, verses six through 11. It begins with Jesus being equal with God, not at the top, but at the bottom. Equal with God, then he, he gives himself to be a servant. Then he gives himself to take on humanity and he gives himself to be obedient to the point of death and he gives himself to death on a cross. That's the outline of Philippians 2, 6 through 11 that we recited. It's not about a rise to the top or a quest for the top. It's a quest for the bottom. It's about being the most powerful, the very nature of God, equal with God, giving his power up for the benefit of others, even to the point of being the most despised on the planet earth, the crucified one. This humility paradigm of the Philippians 2 creed is an upside down paradigm. Therefore, Philippians 2, 9, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. In the new paradigm in the kingdom of heaven, humility is what saves. Humility is what causes everything to rise, not personal power, 
but giving away personal power, giving away prominence, giving away prosperity, giving away privilege so that other people might succeed. That's how God is saving this world. It's an upside down paradigm. It's the humility paradigm that is found in the humility creed. You see, the the plan of God is to save the world by bringing an end to the power paradigm and establishing a humility paradigm. And we see that in the life and ministry of Jesus. We studied his life in pretty great detail over the summer, and we see that Jesus intentionally tore down the power paradigms. A wealthy man came to Jesus, hey, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, are you obeying all the laws? Yes. Are you giving away all your wealth? No. You interested in giving away your wealth to help people? No. He was testing his heart. He wasn't saying you have to obey all the laws and you have to give away every dime, but he was testing this man's heart. This man's creed was not aligned with the kingdom of heaven. This man's creed was about himself, the power paradigm. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, the kingdom of heaven paradigm is an upside down paradigm. It's about humility. Then Jesus went to the religious leaders who were using the name of God to manipulate other people. It still happens today. It's one of the most terrible forces on the planet earth, using the name of God and religious power to hurt and abuse other people. It happens all the time still, and it's disgusting, and it happens even in our own area. Jesus confronted the religious, and he tears them down. He says, with all your religious peddling, you're making twice the sons of hell as you. Stop it. Knock it off. Don't use God's name for your own personal power or your own personal influence. Then Jesus even goes to Roman political authority, and he's with Pontius Pilate, right? And he is, he's abused, and he's in chains, and he's before this Roman authority. And this Roman authority says, so are you a king? And Jesus says, well, you say I'm a king, but here's the reality. The reality is everyone who sides with me sides with truth. Truth wins out. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus is saying, I am the one bringing a whole new kingdom, a whole new paradigm, a whole new creed, and it doesn't go by any power of wealth. It doesn't go by any power of religion. It doesn't go through any Roman political power. It's a whole new kingdom with a whole new king. See, Jesus establishes a new kingdom of humility by his teaching, his life, and most of all, his crucifixion. And the reason why the cross is at the center of the Christian faith, it is because it is is the most clear expression of humility based on the creed of Philippians 2, the very nature of God gave himself on a cross. Therefore, his name is higher than any name on earth. That's the paradigm of the kingdom of heaven. That's the creed of the kingdom of heaven. It's about humility. So I'm gonna read the passage again that we stood and recited. I'm gonna read that passage and just notice the inverse paradigm. Notice the, the kind of the, 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 the top is at the bottom and the quest is for humility. Notice the, the order. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Equality with God, seeking the humility of the cross. That's the inverse kingdom of heaven. Now, you might say to yourself, okay, this is church, and we're talking about a bunch of doctrine. 
We're talking about doctrines about Jesus. Well, what does that mean to daily life? You know, the the great accusation of church life is that it's totally irrelevant. You know, here's church doctrine over here, and then I leave church and I go live my life, and they're, they're completely separate. What I want us to consider as we study this creed together is that the, this creed, which is an expression of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, walking the path of humility to the cross, to bear the sins and the burdens and the shame and the scorn of the world upon himself, to die for it, to pay for it in full, and to rise again to give us new and eternal life that the life and ministry of Jesus is actually the very creed of our life and how we live our life. That the creed that we're studying over the next month is in fact the motivation for everything we do. In fact, all you have to do is look at the preamble to the creed to know exactly how powerful this creed is to our daily life. Listen to the vision of how we live based on the creed found in Philippians 2, 2 through 5. And I want you to imagine you living this kind of life. Imagine if, if you embraced this creed, this Christ-centered creed, this quest for humility, right? The, the creed of humility, what my life could be like. Be like-minded, having the same love as Christ Jesus, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Don't you think that life would be a life well-lived? Don't you think that would be an incredible way to live your life, a life that is lived just like Christ, as Jesus Christ took the great power and strength and privilege that he had as being equal with God, and he gave it and gave it and gave it in a quest for humility to serve others, to make sure others had enough, to make sure others were loved, to make sure others understood that they were accepted and cared for. Jesus gave what he had for the benefit of others. Could you imagine what that life might look like? That's an incredible life. And that life starts by saying, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. And that's really the, the point of the creed and the point of memorizing the creed and having it in our soul is to be able to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm with him. This is what I believe in. So this is how I'm going to live. I believe in Jesus Christ who took every bit of privilege that was rightfully his and he gave and he gave and he gave for the benefit of others to help save this world, to bring God's saving grace to this whole world. I get to follow him. I'm with Jesus Christ. And if we were to believe this creed and accept this creed and receive this creed and say, I'm with Jesus, watch what happens to your life. It won't happen overnight, but watch what happens to your life. When you are now walking the path of Christ, you're walking a path of humility, not a power paradigm about how you can get to the top and you can get your way and, and you can be heard. I can get my way. I can be heard and I can be respected. But to reverse that and to say, I'm walking the path of Christ, which is a path of humility based on this creed in Philippians 2. For those of you who are, are young, you're not yet married. Imagine if you lived your life by this creed, a creed of humility. If you're young today, ask yourself, what kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be a person who's looking out for yourself? You want to be right? You want to be approved? You want stuff? You want, you know, life is for you and your own fun, your own pleasure. If you want that kind of life, just put your life in the giant pile of typical. There's nothing spectacular about that. You might have a good time. You know, you might make a few friends. You might have a good job. You might have a good lifestyle. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. But then there's the life of Christ, 
a paradigm of humility. Ask yourself as a young person, what kind of life do you want to live? Do you want a life that is kind to others, adding value to other people's lives, making other people feel good about who they are, appreciating other people, encouraging other people, serving other people, using every bit of strength that God gave you to better the lives of others. That's a life lived in humility. That's a life lived by the creed of humility. And I'm telling you, that's a powerful life. If you're married, imagine if you lived your life by the creed of humility. Every day there's something in your brain that says, you know what, today I wanna make my wife or my husband feel special. I want to, I want to be sure that they know they are dearly loved. I want them to know that, that I think about them often. I wanna say something nice to them every single day. I wanna prove to them in word and deed how much I cherish them. That's a creed of humility. A creed of power in marriage says, I wanna get my way, I wanna win this argument, and, you know, and off we go. A creed of humility takes every bit of strength that we have and gives some of that up for the benefit of our spouse. That's an incredible marriage. For those of you who are parents, imagine walking a creed of humility with your kids. Every day, how can I raise them today to be good people? How can I raise them today to know that they're unconditionally loved? How can I raise them today to know that they're not annoyances, they're not in my way, they're not an inconvenience, right? But my life is to train them and to guide them and to coach them into a good selfless life. And so I will strive by God's strength not to just bark at them and not to say mean things to them. But if I do bark and if I do say mean things, I'm gonna apologize because I'm walking the road of humility. Imagine a life lived in humility. Now, some people said back then, 2000 years ago when this creed was written, the creed of humility is for weak people. That was the accusation. In fact, if you wanted to, to accuse somebody, if you wanted to mock somebody during the time of Christ and the time of the early church, you would call them humble. That, that, was, that was casting aspersion. That was, that was accusing somebody of weakness. Oh, you're humble. Because keep in mind, the greatest morality was the road of power. The reason why this creed was written in Philippians chapter two was to show that the strength of God Almighty himself was shown in his humility. Humility is actually the strongest thing you can do because you're not using what you have for your own benefit. You're using your strength and your privilege and your power for the benefit of others. That's incredible strength. Charles Spurgeon wrote about Philippians chapter two, this creed, and he says this, and just think of this as we close. Jesus was always stripping off first one robe of honor, then another, and then another, until he was naked and fastened to the cross. And there he emptied out his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving up everything for all of us, till they laid him penniless in a borrowed grave. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? May we think often of the cross. Then our position will no longer be that of the pompous man of pride, but we shall take the humble place of one who loves much. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this creed found in Philippians 2. Thank you that it, it was the, the charisma, the message, the gospel, the good news of the early church. These four simple verses explaining the humiliation of Jesus, the one who was by very nature God, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of human flesh, giving himself to the point of death, even death on a cross 
Jesus Christ gave himself to the full extent to show your love for us. So God, free us from a self-centered creed. Free us from a materialistic creed. Free us from a religious creed. Free Free us from a power creed. And I pray that we would embrace and accept the creed of humility to follow Jesus, to say, I'm with him. I accept his love. I accept his grace. I accept his forgiveness freely given to me, not based on anything I've done. I'm in a right and perfect standing with God Almighty because of the gift of Jesus Christ to give his life, to forgive my sin, and to give us new and eternal life. But God, we not only want to receive the free gift of forgiveness and new life in Christ, but we want to live like him by your power, by your word, a life lived on the creed of humility. We want to walk the path of Christ where we give what we have. We give our power. We give prominence. We give prosperity for the benefit of other people. That is a life well lived, lived by the creed of humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.